Oh, hey, very good, Beauregard. It really looks great. You've swept it spotless and polished it, too. Well, I couldn't find any elbow grease. I expect not. So I used axle grease. What kind of an idiot are you? Oh, I didn't know there was a choice. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick. That Beauregard's a real dummy. Uh, he means well. <laughs> you know, he's been in the like past couple of episodes, like in the background, but we got the full Beauregard this this week. I think this is our first proper chance to see the void stare back into us. It's <laughs> it's new. Uh, are you ready for the Helen ready puns? I'm glad they didn't go much further than they actually did, but I meant for me. Oh, well, I guess I have to be. <laughs> <laughs> this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Uh, before we get started, we're going to uh, ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. We are currently going through the Muppet show two episodes at a time, the third season, but actually not tonight. Today, we're just doing one episode in real life. <laughs> no, back in 1978, uh, when the Muppet show was filming their season, they did stop after this episode. They they took actually basically a six-month break after recording this episode. And they went off and they made themselves a little movie. So in our attempt to maintain a chronological watch as much as we can, uh, we are going to do the same thing. So this episode is going to be significantly shorter. And you're welcome for that. But uh, I, I was a little up and down on tonight's episode. I could I could see that. I think... At the end of the season, well, before before I go too far, I think our, our guest star is very interesting, but this is one that shines more when the Muppets are doing their own thing than when they're interacting with our guest. I would agree. Well, are you ready to get started? Ready or not, here it comes. All right, Nick, I've heard the name Helen Reddy. I've now watched an episode starring Helen Reddy. I can guess she's a singer. She's an entertainer in general. She's a multi, like her family is a multi-generational entertainment sort of situation. Helen Maxine Reddy was born on October 25th, 1941 in Melbourne, Australia to Stella Campbell, who was a singer, an actress, and a dancer, and Maxwell David Reddy, who was a writer, producer, and an actor. I think I didn't, she doesn't have much of an accent during the episode, but I think that's why we kept seeing all of those Foster's cans placed everywhere. <laughs> she was born during World War II. Her father was a sergeant in the Australian Army with a unit of entertainers. He would return to service during the Korean War. But by age four, Helen was joining her parents on a vaudeville circuit performing, and it was one of those cases where she was sort of expected to pick up the performance bug along with the rest of her family because that's just what they did. And she wanted to rebel and be a wife and a homemaker. By the time that she was 12, she was clashing with her parents a little bit, so she was sent to live with her paternal aunt, who 
would become a big influence on her as she became more of a, a figure in the women's movement later on uh, in the 60s and 70s. She would marry a man named Kenneth Claude Wheat, who was a much older musician and a family friend. They would divorce soon after, but she would have a daughter during the course of that marriage, and she would resume her entertainment career to support her daughter, focusing on singing. She'd had uh, medical complications, and she couldn't necessarily dance like she would have when she was younger. She would eventually win a talent show, talent contest on an Australian pop show called Bandstand, with the prize being a trip to New York City to cut a single for Mercury Records. But it turns out that the ticket that she was promised was only to get her there to audition, not for a guarantee of a recorded single. And she tried to use her bandstand footage as an audition, but she wasn't taken on. Despite this, and the fact that she had her three-year-old daughter with her, and she had very little money to her name, she decided to stick it around in New York and sort of hash things out as best she could. Of course, she didn't have a work visa at this time, so she couldn't get singing jobs in New York, so she would take trips up to Canada sing there and then come back. So like, I, I just want to take a second out to be like, she was, we, we talk about hustlers and like people yeah. that just try to make things go and make push to make things happen. Seeing the way that she performed on this episode, I, I would not have guessed any of the, like she was a very, very good performer and she was very good at sort of embodying that scent that sense but with the backstory that we've heard even up to this point you would expect a personality something like loretta lynn she does seem like she's pushing more for like a julie andrews angle which is kind of interesting she did remind me of julie andrews a little bit yeah yeah more than just the hair that might have been it well, it wasn't the voice a little bit too but around 1966 her friend threw her a rent party where people would basically pay money to come in to socialize and have a good time and that way she'd be able to make rent on her apartment which was very nice of that friend her future husband would actually sort of sneak into the party and she met Jeff Wald there. And Jeff Wald is going to become an important figure for better and for worse because he was a music producer and she described it as a sort of love at first sight thing, but they would be married within three days. This might sound impulsive. Um, and you think just a bit, but I think part of it was also the convenience because if she was married to him as an American, she could get jobs singing. He was also connected to entertainment and he offered to manage her. Of course, he lost his job shortly after that. Her singing supported him and her daughter. Um, and they were living very thrifty, like they were staying in hotels and sort of skipping out on bills and doing things like that. But the amount that she did make from singing was brought back home to the family. Her husband, Walt, uh, Jeff Wald, would move the family to L.A. where he was hired at Capitol Records and fired the same day. Uh, <laughs> okay. Meanwhile, I've never even done that. I I don't think I have either. <laughs> she would. Meanwhile, she would enroll at UCLA to study psychology and philosophy. And Wald would start to gain success by managing groups like Deep Purple or Tiny Tim. But this, in turn, pissed Helen off because he was supposed to be supporting her, and she'd done so much. So she delivered an ultimatum, and he threw himself wholeheartedly into making sure that he made her a star to the extent that he was pestering the people at Capitol on a regular basis. And they eventually offered to give her a break. If he promised he wouldn't call them for a month. <laughs> These guys are real hustlers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. desperation is a great motivator. <laughs> yeah. And she would get her first single following this, uh, which was titled, I don't know how to love him.
around this time, Helen had been going to school. She'd been bettering herself. She'd been like the, the women's movement was starting to pick up as well. And she was looking for a song that would reflect some of the positive self-reflective or the positive self-image she'd been cultivating and it didn't exist. So she decided to write it, which is where we get what is arguably her biggest hit and feminist anthem. I am woman, hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. Cause I've heard it all before and I've been down there on the floor. No one's ever gonna keep me down again. I'd heard the song before. I had never known who sang it. Um, it is one of those sort of, I, I guess you would call it a, when you call something a standard, it makes it sound like it's a jazz standard, and I feel like that's <laughs> misrepresenting it. But it it's an anthem. I think you hit it. Yeah, it's an anthem. And the song was released in May, and it didn't do very well. And then it had started making the rounds because the, the movement was picking up, and due to women just deluging radio stations with requests for it, it hit number one in December, or not December, excuse me, September, after just coming back onto the charts. Following that, she would have over a dozen top 40 hits over the next five years. She would receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 1755. During the 70s, she also had a number of guest roles on shows like Love Boat, Fantasy Island, The Jeffersons, and The Muppet Show. She was also the mom in Pete's Dragon. Um, yeah. But okay. her career would start to slump in the late 70s. Her 10th album was the first not to make gold since her second album, which was before she sort of hit it. She would then divorce Wald in the 80s, and she blamed his interference for her not being able to make a proper comeback after that because he might not have taken that well. She would start her own label in 1990, and she released her album Feel So Young on that. She would go on to announce her retirement in 2002. She gave a farewell performance with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, and she moved from California back to Australia that year. She briefly came out of retirement in 2011. Um, she sang an a cappella version of I Am Woman at 2017's Women's March. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Sometime in 2015, sources revealed that she'd been diagnosed with uh, dementia, and she actually passed last year at age 78 on September 29th, 2020. And this is sort of like a Cliff Notes version. She had a life. Sounds like it. The Muppet Show, episode 313, featuring guest star Helen Reddy, was produced during May of 1978. It would premiere in the UK on December 1st of the same year, and in the States on September 21st of that same year. Directed by Philip Casson, written by our favorite guys, mostly. Mostly. Yeah, let's, let's get into it. Yeah, I'm ready. So, during a cold open, uh, speaking of puns, Scooter comes in to let Helen know that the curtain's going to go up in a little bit and she'll be, and she says that she'll be there ready or not, which is disappointing to Scooter because he thought that she'd be a little bit higher brow. Did you mean to make that joke? Well, I meant to make that joke before someone else did. You think we'd stoop that low? Hey, three to get ready. For once, Scooter doesn't really have a leg to stand on. She's not super present on this episode. She, she does her like required three things, but you don't, 
like after reading her bio, I would love to see her just open up and like go like full into the paint for it. She does her three songs, a little comedy bit and is out. Uh, but we we start with the theme. Uh, Statler and Waldorf find a couple of chickens roosting in their box and we get some like full on Sesame <laughs> Street notes coming out of Gonzo's trumpet. Yeah, it reminded me of the visual thinking from Sam and Friends. But also, come on, you, you just flew by the flying chickens. I just it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I know you've, you see it a lot. You do see it a lot. It's it's a good bit. It's just they're flying chickens, though. They are flying chickens. Chickens. I mean, at least they're not flying turkeys because turkeys don't fly. You do chickens. But we get our opening number, which is amazing. Highlight of the week. Oh, it's so good. The only thing. So, Chad, you know, I've got a dark and warped sense of humor. Well, this this sketch plays right into that. For the opening number, we focus on Miss Piggy, who is portraying Marie Antoinette. <laughs> um, but right now, we whisk you back through time and space to the Palace of Versailles, where Marie Antoinette bears a striking resemblance to our own Miss Piggy. So we complained about disco in the past, but Miss Piggy does a cover of Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. <laughs> I guess probably the biggest number from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. From oh yeah, it's the it's the theme to Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, uh, written by Barry Maurice and Robin Gibb. So the thing is, anyone who's familiar with history and or the work <laughs> of Dickens knows where this is going, and the pairing of staying alive with the powdered wigs, powdered wigs, and the French uh, the French aristocracy. It's so good. It's so good. It takes a minute for it to sink in. No, I knew as soon as maybe my mind just goes to those places. I was like, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And it takes till the end of the bit for you to see the guillotine. But still, everything down to like you see one poor person that's scrubbing the floor in the background and just looking miserable. And everyone else is just dancing around having a great time. And I'm just waiting for something to start snatching pigs. Like straight out. of. I don't know if you ever watched uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple. But it was this like weird game show for kids on Nickelodeon in the 90s. But if kids made it far enough, some guy in like a giant abominable snowman or like Yeti outfit would just come out, grab those kids and disappear. And you never saw those kids again. I was waiting, waiting for someone to start grabbing pigs. So this is basically Sofia Coppola's uh, Marie Antoinette movie in about two and a half minutes. <laughs> and because uh, that involves Marie Antoinette doing a lot of partying and, and playing pop music and then and then getting her head cut off. Well, first of all, the performance is great. Yes. The performance of the song is awesome. Obviously, it's Frank, but everybody's doing a great job. Then it turns into a disco floor. And my eight year old goes, I thought this took place in the past. They didn't have disco lights. <laughs> I was like... 
They're the Muppets. They can do what they want. <laughs> Come on. But she was very incredulous. But then at the end, you get this image of a guillotine shattered in the window. <laughs> and they all run away. <laughs> and it is like the darkest. It's so good. It's so, such a dark bit. Um, that, that, I mean, for a kid's show, I wouldn't have gotten that as a kid. Yeah, no, like for what it's worth, it's probably going to be more traumatic to a kid. Yeah, this is just a fun number. The pigs are dressed up funny and they're singing the Bee Gees. Who doesn't like the Bee Gees? A lot of people don't like the Bee Gees, but who doesn't like the Bee Gees? Have I ever told you my Versailles story? It's not really a story. What did you do in Versailles? Nothing. It's not really a story. It's just an observation. Hmm. Years ago, my wife and I went to Paris. Really nice. Saw cool stuff. My favorite was the uh, grave of the Marquis de Lafayette. He's buried under uh, soil taken from Bunker Hill. But we uh, we went to Versailles one day and Versailles, and we walked all through it and we saw the many, many houses and Marie Antoinette's little faux Austrian village that she built so she could go to it when she felt homesick. And it was like a full, like basically a life size dollhouse and the grottos and all this stuff. And we were standing in the middle of these beautiful or- orchards and all this stuff. And I turned to my wife and I said, this place is amazing. And I would have cut their fucking heads off, too. That's what Versailles made me feel like. This is gorgeous, but I get it. <laughs> the performance is great, and then it's got an amazing punchline. Mm-hmm. Then they come off stage asking Piggy if they can eat cake. <laughs> the rest of the pigs. You know they all answer to her, Chad. You know that as much as Link might like to think that he's the one in charge, she's the one they fear. I did like the fact that after they said that, Kermit said... Uh, historically wrong but hysterically wrong and that's true she never said let the meat cake so ha huh? so we we get to meet our new blue-eyed boy Beauregard who's he means well well he's our we we've seen him a few times but this is the first time we've established that he's the new janitor mm-hmm. maybe he's the new janitor <laughs> um, he doesn't seem to know that I think he's half Joe Gargery and half Drax the Destroyer but Probably not capable of destroying much on purpose. Oh, he can destroy plenty on accident, though. <laughs> can and He's will. very efficient at destroying things on accident, actually. Kermit's upset because the backstage is kind of messy. And to be fair, as a messy person, I recognize that that can affect your ability to think. And Beauregard wants to be helpful. It's his job. Yeah. Theoretically. Kermit tells him to clean up and put some elbow grease into it. And Beauregard, uh, idioms aren't a strong suit. Did I mention he's a dummy? He means well. <laughs> he's And you know what? He tries to solve problems. He does a terrible job at it. But, you know, he's the reason that some people think that it's better to ask permission than forgiveness. Do you have any experience with Beauregard? Not off. He reminds me of someone, but I can't say it on the podcast in case they're listening. Um, <laughs> I'll explain later. Yeah. Uh, but I've probably seen him before. I didn't have a strong association with him. Yeah, th- it's, it's, it's kind of cool because, like... He he he's not really he's not really in the Muppet movie, but he features prominently in like the Green Muppet Caper, and mm. so it's neat to see like Beauregard to me is like just one of the Muppets, you know, and mm-hmm. so it's you know it's nice to see him. Okay, Bo's here now, you know. It's kind of like that's uh, kind of like when Link joined, you know. It's like mm-hmm. the gang's getting together, you know. Bo's never more than a, a second tier Muppet, but he is a Dave Goals character. Uh, I I like Bo. I think he's sweet. He seems sweet. Kind of a dummy though. Yeah. Yeah. So we go 
I, I'm of three minds. I'm of two minds for this, but I feel like our next bit in the recording studio, uh, which is our first feature of our guest star, Helen performs a song called Blue. Yeah, weird, man. It's. It never coheres. When you can't find a friend and the road doesn't seem to end and you're lonesome. The whole day through How can you be Happy How can you be Smiling How can you be Anything but low down Saggy and blue Like there's There's her singing and then there's Animal playing too loud on the drums Except he never plays too loud on the drums And the best, best part of this entire bit for me, and I don't know what his name actually is, but the sound engineer Muppet, who's probably a whatnot, will forever be the Brian May Muppet to me. <laughs> and no one's going to be able to change my mind. The sound engineer is played by Roger Knight, who was the sound engineer on The Muppet Show. Oh, it's so good. And he is a whatnot, but he was named after him, and he dubbed in the line of dialogue in post-production. And the thing is, so as we as we talk about this and we're, we're sort of glossing over Helen's contribution, she has a, a lovely voice. Yes. It just, it feels like some of those first season episodes where guests didn't necessarily play as well with the Muppets. It is, but it's also so much more elaborately staged. That's... This is a very elaborately staged number. There's a sort of uh, a dissonance that's created with that because... The production's clearly there. They clearly set up. It could have done... She's in a recording studio, right? She's in a recording studio. She's got the musicians in there, like she's doing a recording session, got her backup singers, and then she's even got, you know, a sound recorder and a producer in the booth. Like, it's supposed to be simulating her in a recording session. She doesn't necessarily interact with Floyd or with anyone else. There's no playing to the Muppets, really. She's just sort of following the camera. It just was kind of inert. And again, her vo- there's nothing wrong with her voice. She sounded fine. It's just yeah. it felt simultaneously like it wanted to be a Muppet number and like it didn't. She's using that skinny ass 70s microphone again. <laughs> what I do find interesting, I'll say about this, is that the song is from the from a 1977 Raggedy and an Andy musical. The music in the book were written for that musical by Sesame Street songwriter Joe Raposo. The song is fine, yeah. but uh, but I think you're right. I, I just this is one case where. I don't think the conceit of the number does her any favors. I feel like it would if I don't know if this is her comfort level, if it's just the way that she everything that I learned from her bio made it seem like she had a very strong personality, but it's not present. I mean, I was stunned to hear you say she was Australian. Yeah, no, you're you're right. She doesn't have a strong presence, uh, at least in this or not, not a strong presence. She's present. She doesn't have a big personality. There's I, uh, I couldn't I came out of it. My wife and I kind of just shrugged at the end of it. We were kind of like, all right, I guess she was the person who sang, you know, <laughs> like it wasn't, she just didn't leave much of an impression. But that's completely dissonant with everything else that I came across, though. It's like, I know I watched this episode two hours ago with my kids and I can't remember what this song sounds like. Yeah. But I remember what this next scene sounds like. Anyway, back to Beauregard. We go backstage and he did a job. He was given a job to do. He did the job. Uh, he was told to make the backstage spotless. And he didn't really understand how to get Grease out of his elbow. Oh, hey, very good, Beauregard. It really looks great. 
You've swept it spotless and polished it, too. Well, I couldn't find any elbow grease. I expect not. So I used axle grease. <laughs> instead, of, instead of elbow grease. Which, you know, that's there's a lot that employers will ask for when it comes to a can-do attitude. Kermit gets most the better part of uh, a compliment out, and then... <laughs> and then he realizes what's really happened. And it all sort of slides away. Boy, watch out! Hey! <laughs> what a bad... How do you manage to stay upright? We give a lot of praise to Frank Oz, and rightfully so. Jim Henson kills this. Oh, yeah, he's great. (laughs) I don't think, you know, I don't think we necessarily, it sounds as much as we, I don't think we give Jim enough props sometimes, because Frank is so, like, spectacular. Jim nails this. It, there's the there's the moment where Kermit gets to the bottom of the steps and he pushes himself off to slide across the floor to get to Bo, and Bo <laughs> catches him. Oh, it was the laugh I needed this week <laughs> to get to to make me survive to the next week. It was so good and That's it was good. so well performed. Like Jim really, really is. He's very funny in this. I know he's funny all the time, but. It's one of those things that I think we do tend to take for granted is like, oh, yeah, of course, Jim's amazing. We're doing a podcast on him, but we, we, we do have to make sure we give him props for those standout performances. And you're absolutely right. He does amazing with Kermit. And then, but then he says he has a special pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. Which is the reason he's not slipping. And then Kermit gets into them and it turns out it's just because they're nailed to the floor. Beauregard showed the initiative to find a new problem and solve that problem as well. But that means he was already, yeah, it means he was already aware of the problem he had caused. And then Jim does this great bit where Kermit's kind of like wobbling in the shoes. It's not Beauregard's stat to question why. This next bit. You know, it is what it is. It's, it's what, I wasn't sure if it was the UK spot or if they were just trying to fill time, sort of like they did with those old animal fills. I thought it was funny. Animal and the Swedish chef stop by Helen's dressing room to sing her their version of Happy Birthday, which is a great bit in itself. The idea of the two of them just sort of being like... Today is not my birthday. This is all about having Animal and the Chef sing together. Mm-hmm. That's all this is about. That's all. That's the only reason this sketch exists is to have Animal and the Chef sing together. Uh, Helen is kind enough to inform them that it's not her birthday, and then they start singing Jingle Bells instead, which. <laughs> I mean, I think it made it to the UK around Christmas, so I get it kind of makes sense. But they just wanted to sing something joyous and she shuts them down because she's like, it's not my birthday. They're like, fine. Jingle bells. She wasn't ready for it. Happy birthday. Previously copyright Mildred and Patty Hill. Everything about that is so weird. That someone wrote happy birthday. Well, like people weren't allowed to sing it for a long time, right? Without paying royalties. Yeah, because... Two people wrote it. It exists in the same headspace as something like Ring Around the Rosie. Like, it's just this side of a nursery rhyme. Yeah, no, happy birthday. Somebody wrote that song in 1893. A couple of sisters. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny. So Kermit, wants in the shoes, is kind of stuck at that point. And Beauregard, ever helpful Beauregard. Just wanders on stage. So my great uncle Beauregard said to me, he said, Beauregard, you go into show business and you'll clean up. And you know something? He was right. Will you name Beauregard after him? 
about 40 years after. And he's still polishing the stage while he does. Have you ever seen UHF? I was re- I haven't watched it in a long time. Just it just reminds me of Michael Richards and his mop. Uh, <laughs> My mop! We get get a great bit with uh Fozzie after this. Uh and have we seen the Muppets in the back that are the background dancers? Nah, these are just some whatnots. But we're, there's like a spot on the stage that's massively slippery, and it's playing up the backstage story a little bit, although it's a bit more focused. But the best part is those whatnots are doing absolutely fine. The only person that's having trouble is Fozzie. <laughs> yeah, they, they, it's really weird. It's Fozzie and three whatnots doing a dance number, which is so not Fozzie. He's a multi-talented bear. That's not what he doesn't get paid for. That's not what he doesn't not get. Anyway, yeah, really funny. It reminded me of the fireman. Yeah, the, the I don't want to set the world. I don't want to set the world on fire. UK spot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's got the three dancers with him, and they're doing great. And Fozzie just keeps slipping. And uh, you know who laughs when uh, Fozzie keeps slipping? Every, everyone in my family. Yeah, I was about to say. Is, is I was going to say the kids, but it wasn't just the kids. <laughs> It's it's a straightforward, simple bit, but it's effective. The kids dug it. Don't get me wrong. The kids really dug it. So, the next bit. Here is a Muppet News Flash. Dateline, Silver Spring, Maryland. It has me wondering, because we, we've all felt sorry for the newsman at one time or another. Does he owe the mob money? Because the way that that refrigerator comes in... Oh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The newsman reports on a couple attempting to break the record for overhand refrigerator tossing. Only one way that can go. Exactly. We know exactly where that's going. But the way that refrigerator comes down feels like a threat. Not just like a general <laughs> threat of like a stray bullet or something like that, but like someone's trying to send the Muppet newsman a message that his gambling problem's getting out of hand. <laughs> you just see this look of fear on his face like, oh God, that... And I like the Muppet Newsman. <laughs> it does seem malicious. It does seem a little more malicious. Is that, is that how the mob sends a message? I mean, I'm sure they get creative. Sometimes it's got a tire iron. Sometimes it's a horse head. But very, very standard Muppet News segment. Short, sweet, to the point. Terrifying for that poor, poor man. And then we get to our UK spot, which is the Beethoven bust going to be a regular thing? I think it shows up a couple of times. Hmm. I mean, this is the second time. Rolf plays uh, Beethoven's Pathétique must periodically wake up the bust and he usually does that by like punching the piano which i love <laughs> I, lo- I love that rolf is yeah he keeps waking up beethoven during beethoven's own music you might call it kind of pathetic <laughs> you, um, might, you might you might it was the piano sonata number eight in c minor opus 13 it was uh released in 1798 was this the same one that rolf played where scooter kept trying to speed him up no no, that was something else. This was one where Rolf came. It, it, he did try to do this before, but it was he came out and Scooter just kind of interrupted him and said, "You're." At, I think Rolf was like preparing, and the Scooter was like, "We're out of time." I, my favorite moment though is when it, Rolf's humming along to it, and the Beethoven statue's like, "Don't hum." <laughs> yes, sir. From there, we get back to Helen, where she sings a song called "You and Me Against the World," which she wrote for her daughter, and it's just me against the world, baby. Me against the world. Not to be confused with the Tupac song. You and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like you and me against the world. When all the others turn their backs and walk away, you can count on me to stay. Remember. 
not to be confused with the Tupac song, but also I can absolutely see where this song would have come from, given just how, like, her straits were pretty dire for a minute. It is a song, uh, was a 1974 hit for her. It was written by Paul Williams and Kenny Asher. More about them next episode. It's a good song. Yeah, it's nice. It was a little saccharine for me. And when one of us is gone And one of us is left to carry on Then remembering we'll have to do I see the floors are no longer slippery. Oh, well, that's probably because Kermit told me to spread a little sand around. A little sand. Yeah, somebody ought to teach you the meaning of a little, though. <laughs> so he knew that if there was grease all over the floor and we didn't want the grease there, that you should get sand. Where he got the sand from, I have no idea. He's a wizard, Harry. <laughs> He's like some sort of savant. Um, but... Beauregard follows Kermit's orders to fix the damage that was created by the grease, and he spreads a little bit of sand around. By a little bit, I mean significantly more than a little bit, enough even to <laughs> attract a camel. It's a, nice, it's a nice shot, too, where you have Scooter in this uh, medium shot, you know, kind of chest up shot, and uh, then the camera pulls back to reveal that he's buried in sand. Frogs aren't going to do very well in, like, a, a desert, are they? I feel like this presents all sorts of problems. Perhaps, yeah. But he, but he's brought in way too much sand. And yes, and then a camel goes by. Keep your eye on that camel. <laughs> that camel will be back. The camel's going to actually impress the hell out of me in a little bit. It's I, I, I'm inclined to agree. It's a talented camel. From there, we get our veterinarian's hospital, which I thought was a lot of the jokes this one were really solid. As exasperated yeah. as Miss Piggy was getting. So, where's the next patient? Oh, right here, Dr. Bob. Oh, Oh, look at that. Hey, he looks cold. We better turn up the heat. Dr. Bob, those are not earmuffs he's wearing. He was in the recording studio. Don't you know about headsets? Of course. The headset's on the neck. The neck sets on the shoulders. <laughs> I learned that the first year in doctor class. Dr. Bob, have you forgotten about the patient? No, the patient is the one who's sick. I learned that the second year. <laughs> I think both... Piggy and Janice are just like, I'm done with you, Rolf. And Rolf's like, I'm not done with me. You guys get to sit here. And it's great. They're dealing with the sound booth operator from the first thing. And he's uh, he's deaf. That's why <laughs> Dr. Bob is, uh, is is attending to him. There's one point where, where Dr. Bob's like, No, it's Dr. Bob. This patient, he's lost his hearing. Well, maybe he dropped it someplace. <laughs> I'll look under the table. What kind was it? A clip-on or one of those pierce jars? His earring, his hearing, Dr. Bob. This man can't hear anything. Mm, he's lucky. I've heard every dumb word. Every dumb joke. It's like a joke about wanting to remove the eardrum. They're like, no, no, the drum's supposed to be in there. He's like, what about the piano? That sounds like a Groucho Marx joke to me. <laughs> it, was a, it was a funny vet's hospital. As we get to our next part, the thing is, I feel like, because we get all sorts of things that are like clues that our guest might be Australian, except she has no accent. There's nothing, <laughs> there's no sort of like display of cultural pride. Not that she's obligated to or anything like that. Not that we get to know her in any way, shape or form. There's that. And there's also like, I just thought it was product placement. I thought that the Muppet show was doing that thing that Kurtzman did when he found out that mad magazine had a subscription, a subscriber in Cuba and that subscription was about to expire. And so he took the entire mad magazine staff down there to throw a party and they threw such a party that 
the guy's neighbor also wanted to subscribe to Mad Magazine, and he called it a success because they doubled their Cuban readership. I just like I thought that he was trying to make the Muppets big in Australia, and it turns out that our guest star was just Australian, and they were the only ones that knew. This is weird. It is, and it feels pointless. <laughs> it feels pointless. It could. It's just the side of mean, but yeah, it's almost mean. Tommy Kangaroo, Tommy Kangaroo, damn. We we have a group of Outback Whatnot singing a song called Tie Me Kangaroo Down Sport, which I've definitely heard before this. I can't remember where. It was probably sometime in the 90s. Was it a Chumbawamba song? Uh, maybe. It might have also had something to do with Crocodile Dundee. I don't rightly remember. But the entire scene just goes into this huge hopping frenzy as these guys found this kangaroo, presumably not to eat it. Presumably. I can't make that promise. Yeah, I don't really know what one does with a kangaroo outside of maybe boxing, and that's not ethical. Well, the song's called Tie Me Kangaroo Down, and so they've got these ropes wrapped around this kangaroo, and they're kind of walking it through the town square. To me, it feels very sinister. Yeah. That they're, like, walking it back into town, like, with all these ropes around it. What does one do with a kangaroo? I don't know. I didn't like it at all. Uh, But the song itself was written by Rolf Harris in 1960. It's an Australian novelty song. The way that the whatnots were designed for this, though, was just... It felt like it was trying to evoke something specific. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't get much out of this one. I didn't quite understand it. And like you said, it was it was real close to being kind of just uncomfortably mean. We go backstage again where Beauregard is trying his hardest. He is doing his best. Solving problems. He is doing as much as he can. And you know what? If he was that little kid that cleaned his room by shoving everything under the rug, it's still technically out of sight and out of mind. Hey, Nick. He's kind of a dummy. He's he's real dumb. Yeah, he's real dumb. Hey, nice going, guys. Way to go. Well, that takes care of the sand. Yep, and I'm glad to be rid of it. Yeah, I swept all the sand out of here. Now, where did you put it? Next door. But that's the stage. He seems to be quite capable. Like, he got all that sand in there. He moved all that sand. I think once he sets his mind to a job, I think he does it. It's just what he does is completely wrong. Yeah, he's he's wrong. He's just wrong. I feel like there's a delicate balance when giving Beauregard directions, because on one hand, you need to be very direct. You cannot use any figures of speech. On the other hand, if your instructions go on too long, he's going to forget the first third. He's got a very particular set of skills. So this sends Kermit into a tizzy, but Kermit thinks on his feet real, real well here. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, there's only one thing to do. Get that camel back out there. Get a palm tree out there. Give me some towels and some tents. Which is how we get our finale with Yeah. Well there's a great moment too where Fozzie goes by and he's like, I just happen to have this palm tree. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> he's walking by. I just happen to have this palm tree nearby. <laughs> I feel like that's Fozzie just upstaging Beauregard and Beauregard not registering it at all. It's a nice little meta joke. <laughs> <laughs> but we we go to a desert paradise, not the Phoebe Gates paradise, but basically the same thing. Uh, where Helen performs We'll Sing in the Sunshine. We'll sing in the sunshine. We'll laugh every day. We'll sing in the sunshine. Then I'll be on my way. While dancing with Sopwith, who is our friend the camel. Yeah, we should have maybe mentioned Sopwith at the top of the show. We're going to see Sopwith a couple of times. Sopwith is voiced by Jerry Nelson. I couldn't find a, about I couldn't find anything about who was in it. Anything about who was inside the camel. 
whoever it was deserves all of the accolades because they performed their ass off. No, it's great. And I, and if I find it, I will cut it in here. But they I were could not find amazing. It. Yeah. But like Helen's singing was solid. The song they sang was We'll Sing in the Sunshine. And it was a folk song that was originally written and performed by Gail Garnett in 1964. What this camel is doing, it's sort of like the, the spider from an episode or two ago where they are completely at home home moving around this entire set like the camel's neck will constantly angle to follow like i i don't know if they would have been able to get tvs small enough to be inside of that so i'm wondering exactly how they kept a clear view on where helen was at a given time in order to keep that arm moving but that it's an amazing performance and imagine they're not really seeing like the person in the back is looking at a monitor tiny little monitor that's inside there Really impressive on on the part of the whoever's operating the camel. I really wish I could figure it out. Maybe I'll reach out to um, Muppet Twitter and see if anybody knows. Did this episode come with a content warning on Disney? It didn't. No, mm. it didn't. Uh, James Coco did, but uh, no, not this one. Hmm. I guess they figure it's not. I don't know. I mean, it does feature one of their Arab characters is what why you're asking, right? Well, that and also the Australians thing. But I was like, it, it feels like it skirts it because... The focus of that scene is not a stereotype per se. It's just a setting. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily too too bad. I mean, it dur- is, during the closing, it's a little closer to the line, I think, mm-hmm. when Kermit comes out to say goodbye. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed working with the camel. Oh, you say you enjoyed it. I said I can't tell you that. <laughs> hey, lady, you like him? He's yours. And he he tries to give the camel to Helen, which they got along. They had chemistry. It's They did. I mean, it's the best. Honestly, it's the best chemistry she has, right? Hmm. I, I had a weird reaction to this episode because I like, like you said, I didn't get like the camel dancing aside. I didn't get much out of her at all. Mm-hmm. But I thought everything else was really good. The thing about, especially after doing a bio on her, I know I've said this already, but she's a very interesting person. And it's not just, oh, she endured so much, but. She's very driven. She's someone who went after the thing she wanted. And she's also someone who's very creative in her pursuit thereof. So it, it just, the the dissonance between who she presents on screen and what we know about her outside of that is kind of staggering. And it, does, it doesn't feel intentional. Right. But I don't know. Like, I, I feel bad saying it because she is our only guest on this episode. And I don't want it to seem like we're just dumping on her. But No, we're not. And, and you know, here's the thing. I think she was... I don't, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything. Um, I just think she was down. You know, if you have great guests and you have bad guests, you're going to have also the guests that are just kind of lumped there in the middle, you know, yeah. I think she's just kind of lumped in the middle, yeah. you know, someone who, who didn't, didn't bring the show down, um, but didn't necessarily elevate it either. And, and that's, and that's fine. That's going to be, that's probably going to be your average guest. Helen Reddy episode was in the can by mid-May, capping off a run of 13 shows in as many weeks, a pace a little more intense than usual. The Muppet Show was about to go on an unprecedented six-month hiatus and would not resume production until November. The Henson gang packed up everything that wasn't nailed down, said goodbye for now to Elstree and their veteran Elstree crew, and flew back to the States, all the way to California. For while the show was indeed taking a break, the people behind the scenes were not. Jim Henson loved television. He really did. Who can forget him badgering his father incessantly for like a year to make him buy the family one? 
It had been his entire career up until this point, timepiece and a few aborted projects aside, and he had finally tamed it, broke the code, and had the most loved and watched television program in the world. Jim loved television, but it wasn't the only thing. It was time to make a movie. People were already calling him the new Walt Disney, but Disney had conquered many mediums, not the least of which was the silver screen. It was time for Jim Henson's Snow White, his Sleeping Beauty, his Cinderella. Okay, I guess we kind of already saw his Cinderella, but you get what I'm saying. It was time to make a Muppet movie. Near the end of 1977, Jim had come to Lord Lou Grade, the man who paid for the Muppet show, and asked him for money to make the Muppet movie. He pitched the ATV Honcho's vision. It would not just be the Muppet show on film. It would be the flip side of the Muppet show, as Jim put it. The first motion picture of its kind, using puppets as its main characters and taking the Muppets out into the real world, Jim said. The pitch went well, but Grade was always a sucker for Jim. Then he saw the price tag. Henson wanted $8 million. It was enough to make the mogul choke on his Cuban cigar. To give you an idea of movie budgets in 1977, $8 million was about the same that Disney had paid for that year's hit animated feature, The Rescuers. Only $3 million less than George Lucas got for Star Wars, more than Smokey and the Bandit and Saturday Night Fever put together, and less than half the price of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It would be about $33.5 million today. But, like I said, the good lord believed in Jim as much as anybody else did. He okayed the budget. $8 million would be fine. He said yes. Jim and former Muppet Show head writer, Jack Burns, started hashing out a story. They then handed their outline to Jerry Jewell, who started hammering out drafts of a script. Paul Williams was called, but nobody had to twist his arm to get him on board. Working with Jim Henson was probably the easiest collaboration of my life, he said often. Jim wanted to direct it, but in a situation that mirrored the initial hiring of Jack Burns, it was decided that they needed an experienced filmmaker to helm the ship. He did not like this. At all. But he relented and they settled on Texan actor-turned-director James Frawley as their man. Frawley was an Emmy-winning television director, mostly known for his work on The Monkees, which, to be fair, wasn't too far off from a live-action Muppet show, who had recently directed two features, a comedic western called Kid Blue in 1973 and The Big Bus in 76, which was a spoof of disaster films. He felt pretty good about my sense of humor, Frawley later said of Henson. I had a very childlike approach to my work and the Muppets fit in well with that. While that may be true, and it might not be, Henson never used a director from outside the company again. The rest of Jim's May and most of June had him zooming back and forth across the country, working on the script, overseeing the sets being built, doing location scouting in Los Angeles, but also New Mexico, keeping up with his Sesame Street obligations, all while running a company growing larger and larger by the minute. Jim spent July 4th, 1978, celebrating Independence Day at Bernie Burlstein's Beach House in L.A. The next morning, film would roll on the Muppet movie, day one of 87. There was a question that lingered over all of this, though. One that people had been asking, but no one really had the answer to. Would people pay for a movie ticket to watch something they see for free every week in their living rooms? Next time, the lovers, the dreamers, and you. So on our next episode, it's finally time, Nick. Are we uh, moving right along? 
We are moving right along to the Muppet movie. That's right. Back in two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks with our special episode about the Muppet movie. Nick's first time watching the Muppet movie. Yeah, I've got weird blind spots. So we're going to take a little uh, a little bit of a, a break to freshen up and be ready to uh, to tackle it. But we're going to talk them up a movie. We're going to go through it. It's probably going to be a longer episode. That's why we wanted to keep this one short. It'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun. It's a it's a great film and uh, I never need an excuse to watch it, but uh, I've got one. So I'm going to watch it again. So please, please come back for our Muppet movie episode. Till then, I am Chad. And I am Nick. And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. This is what I thought. What's that? After this show, nothing hurts. (laughs) 